Hello everyone and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by Vijay Himonk. Today, we're excited to share the latest scientific and clinical updates in the field of MPNs from the ASH 2021 annual meeting. Ruben Misa and Naveen Pemaraju discuss key developments in the treatment and management of MPNs, including myelofibrosis, polycythemia vera and essential thrombocytopenia. In the first part of the discussion, they offer their perspectives on the reintroduction of in-person meetings. I'm Ruben Massa, I'm the Executive Director of the Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson and joined here by my wonderful friend, colleague and global MPN expert, Associate Professor of Leukemia at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, Naveen Pramraju. So, Naveen, Thank you, Ruben. You know, a lot of things going on at this ASH as it relates to MPNs, and I think you have a variety of things for us to discuss. But first, kind of, what are some of your takeaways from the hybrid experience? For those that have not had a chance to, to travel here, you know, we know what a live meeting lo- looks like. We know what now a bunch of virtual meetings have looked like over this time of the pandemic. Any takeaways for, from hybrid? Well, Ruben, that's a great place to start because you and I have seen, seen it all in these last two years. We, we've conducted virtual only uh, two-day conferences yeah. and those work well for people who can't come or are not able to due to health or geography. This ASH is the first of its kind, a true hybrid event. We have sessions together that you and I have been in where the two moderators are remote, oftentimes in different countries. The presenter is remote on a pre-recorded video, technical glitches that have followed as expected. But I think through the miracles of technology and medicine, we're all vaccinated masking up and patients uh, trying to have the patience with each other we've been able to pull this off I find it to be not only miraculous but necessary we've been able to get back into exchanging new ideas new collaborations new inspirations Ruben it turns out that just doing zoom meetings for two years doesn't spark the intellect and inspiration as much it, it, it truly does not no it for mine I'm incredibly grateful you know one that that we've been able to to, to, to come here and be present you know Truly, the majority of on-site attendees, I would say, are, are, are from the U.S. at this point, just through the difficulties of, of travel. But, you know, it would have been not nearly as enriching an experience, and we clearly would not have had the depth of science without really all of our international colleagues, you know, being here as well virtually. So I think, I think we'll learn more, but I think over time we'll clearly get the sense that, you know, the moderators and presenters ideally present as much as possible, right. I think, is key. I think being able to absorb and interact with a meeting remotely, technology can well support. I don't think it supports necessarily the the intersection of multiple remote presenters right. for a live audience. Right. And th- that it, it falls short on. Next up, they discuss the role of TP53 in NPM transforming to AML, as well as implementing discoveries made in NPMs into clinical trials. Well, why don't we share just a bit on the science side? Okay. So we had the, the plenary session today that I know I just saw your tweet just very recently that came out as it relates to the role of P53 potentially and why MPNs progress to AML. Maybe just share a word or two. You know, what are some of the takeaways from that? Is that is that just biology at this point or anything you think we can really do if I order NGS on someone next week and I see P53, should I, should I freak out? 
Oh, this is great. I'm glad you started off on that. Yeah. This is something you and I have talked about for many years. It's really cool to see uh, our MPN sessions highlighted at ASH. There's five, maybe six oral presentations at ASH this year, including being on the plenary uh, once again. The key concept that you just brought up is important. Chronic diseases don't stay chronic all the time, as you and Serge and many, many others have shown. So if you have an MPN, particularly myelofibrosis, the worry, the danger, the risk is that it can go to leukemia. We see it all the time in the clinic. The question here at ASH over the last two years is, can we predict it? Can we do something about it? And can we uh, ward it off uh, altogether? So this is kind of really nice work that builds on uh, the work of our colleagues in New York, Drs. Ross Levine, Rajith Rampal, our colleagues and friends, where there's something called TP53, the guardian of the genome that gets hit, it gets lost, it gets messed up, and now these cancer cells start to proliferate. And in our NPN, unfortunately, that seems to be very important. It seems to herald the transformation to AML leukemia, and worse so, there may not be a whole lot we can do to directly prevent it at this time, except to understand that the combination of inflammation, so tissue injury, picking up mutation or mutations, and then some people will then go to AML leukemia. That was a big uh, talk here at the plenary session, suggesting that single cell analysis in the lab can kind of predict what these cells are going to do before they show up clinically important progress and exciting to see truly how many important discoveries from MPNs have really been, you know, discussed at the plenary right. session at ASH. So just a, a sign of, of the, the depth of the kind of scientific focus, some of the great scientific firepower, you know, that that's from that wonderful Oxford Molecular Medicine Institute that, right. uh, that has really had a tremendous history and impact over the years. So exciting. It also, what you're talking about is important because it highlights the cross-continental collaborations we've all had, yeah. right? The UK groups, multiple groups in, in England and across the world collaborating with our groups in Texas uh, and New York and beyond. And what, what's really great, and you're really one of the pioneers of this, is taking discoveries in the MPNs and then putting it into all the clinical trials. For example, you pioneered the MPN symptom burden, the so-called TSS score. You must be gratified. I was going to say this to you anyway, but now we're on camera. I saw your work on every single clinical trial showing the decrease in the MPN symptom burden. What, do you, what, what is that like uh, 10, 15 years later after you came up with that? You know, well, well it's really grateful to, 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 and gratifying to see. So, so one, clearly, you know, many involved with that, you know, amazing work by Amy Lou Duick, our statistician mm. who was key with that, you know, Robin Sherber a, 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 and others, and clearly patients. But what's great as we walked this journey is at first, there were a lot of people who pushed back, including journal reviewers, mm. that symptoms, you know, aren't a big deal. Right. Uh, in fact, the first paper I had data on symptoms from 1,500 patients, and it was re it was refused by a reviewer who said, well, you know, I have three patients, and they don't have symptoms, so I guess the patients are lying. Oh, wow. You know, so, so to see that evolution, where now we have validated tools, where it's really become the standard, both in trials, you know, and in practice, has been, has been really gratifying, you know. And I think wow. it just gives us insight that, you know, I think the really next level is what does it tell us about biology? Yes. You know, because I think there's a link to biology. You know, there are undoubtedly, you know, issues in terms of depression, anxiety, and others that can factor in, you know, without question. We've done some of that work as well. But, but there's really a, a biology piece. 
Following on from this, they talk on pivotal updates in polycythemia vera, essential thrombocytopenia, and myelofibrosis. Now, one of the areas that we saw that was very interesting is we pivot a bit toward therapies. Mm -hmm. You know, great thing in this ash is that there's really some interesting updates in ETPV and MF. Mm. Before we get to MF, where there's always the, the lion's share, you know, drugs are really kind of vetted in that most difficult group. You know, in ET, I was very excited in seeing uh, the report uh, from Italy, a multi-center study. Uh, there's a parallel study at, at our institution at the Mays Cancer Center with the LST1 inhibitor IMG7289. Yes. You know, and ET has been has been a, somewhat of a difficult space. There's a lot of patients, maybe 150, 200,000 in the U.S. We have hydrea, uh, we have anagrolide, uh, you know, interferon off use, a little bit of ruxolitinib off label. You know, but but the bench is fairly thin. Right. So this is a nice study, and I would say that our our experience and our ongoing study is is similar in patients with hydroxyurea failure, really showing this different mechanism of action, the ability to both control the plate account, improve symptoms, right. you know, and potentially have a little bit of a deeper impact on the disease. So, so early, early going. Right. You know, we also know, I presented a poster uh, yesterday of our now accruing phase three study, uh, I'll shamelessly plug it here in this video, <laughs> the Surpass ET study where your yes. colleague Serge Verstavchik and I yes. are leading, ropegylate interferon now approved in PV. Uh, compared to uh, anagrolide for second-line therapy. So, you know, new therapies upcoming in NET. Now, in PV, we again see some, some potential new options, particularly this, these hepcidin mimetics. Mm -hmm. Why don't you share with folks a little bit of what that rosferatide data looks like, but why, why hepcidin? Why would we want to give a hepcidin mimetic? What, what an exciting conversation, yeah. because you really tied in nicely the elements of biology and in the lab, and then the patient-centered journey, which you and I have always been so focused on, again, with the symptom burden, spleen size reduction, and then moving the story into the earlier patient journeys, uh, ET and PV. PV, all of a sudden now, an exciting time for our patients and caregivers, Ruben, hasn't been necessarily the case over the last uh, decade. The two developments that you mentioned, the ROPEG interferon, Besrimi, now US FDA approved as of a week or two ago, really pioneered in Europe by our friends, Jean-Jacques Lagian uh, and Dr. Gislinger. So I'm excited that that new formulation of interferon, an injectable for our patients is out. But the PTG 300, the Rusfortide, that's the new agent really being discussed here at ASH. So the principle is in P. vera, too many red blood cells, too much iron imbalance, homeostasis is not right. And so now we've been phlebotomizing our patients, asking them to do the long blood draws. Nobody likes that. Yeah. The doctors don't like that. The patients don't like that. The family members don't like that. And it's a transient maneuver. So scientists, uh, including some of our colleagues, said, what about something like a continuous phlebotomy state? Can you make that iron imbalance normal again? Can you tell iron and blood cells to not be so active and go back to their spaces that they belong to, whether it's the liver, the blood, or wherever? So this drug, Rusfortide PTG300, tries to mimic that process through an agent called hepcidin, which tries to tell the iron system, hey, take it easy, have some balance here. Interestingly, it's also a once a week injectable, which is already common in our field anyway. That's interesting. And what we saw today in sort of back-to-back -back oral presentations in our session today is not only this agent works to decrease the phlebotomies or actually eliminate it in many of the patients, 
but that there's scientific correlative data to suggest it's actually doing what we thought. Mm -hmm. It is actually normalizing the iron levels. It is actually bringing down these ferritin and hepcidin uh, balance uh, levels. So I think the bottom line is, is that trial is in an ongoing phase two. And then as with all of our trials, let's let that get into the phase three, the larger setting, so we can see more data, see if this is something we can bring to patients one day. So exciting updates in ET and PV and possibly some new therapies soon, but certainly Ropeg interferon for those that have not used interferons yet, I think will really have a, a really favorable impact. Right, right. You know, has a fairly broad label. Let's pivot a bit toward myelofibrosis. You know, the the energy of drug development always really begins with myelofibrosis. Right. I think because it's you know, uh, the patients really can have a lot of burden of disease. Uh, it clearly has the greatest impact in terms of you know, both morbidity and mortality. So let's first start with with the drug that's approved, but many folks haven't yet quite had. Uh, an experience with which is fedradinib and we heard from Vikas Gupta today uh, some updates from from the freedom study that the, that I and I believe you guys are involved with it as well right. that is you know looking at now kind of the experience kind of post approval you know in, in a study setting and both related to uh, toxicities as well as the issue with thiamine right so any takeaways from that that might be reassuring for folks that have been kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting to write that first prescription for Fedra. Yeah, for me, it was very exciting to see that. This is Dr. Vikas Gupta, our friend and colleague in Toronto, Canada. Beautiful talk today on the so-called Freedom Trial, Phase 3B. So exactly as you said, Ruben, kind of all the drugs already approved and in our hands, but to the credit of the sponsor, you, Claire Harrison, all of the investigators, let's keep looking at safety and tolerability. That was the focus of, of Dr. Gupta's talk. I was excited by it because he showed three things. One is we know about the GI toxicity signal already uh, part and parcel with the drug. He gave some practical mitigation maneuvers. Hey, when you're prescribing this drug, a little bit of patient education, doctor education, some preemptive prescriptions for nausea, vomiting, etc. That was very helpful. Number two, the big story, which you, Claire Harrison, and others reevaluated, was that there was a signal for Wernicke's encephalopathy, a potentially um, serious, maybe even a fatal disorder involving vitamin B1 or thiamine deficiency. Your reanalysis showed that that may not be so much of an issue, and this kind of helped us to understand that. Yes, you should check thiamine levels, you should replace them, but it's not going to stop us uh, in prescribing this medication. I was very pleased to see that, and he showed those levels over time. And then a third part. This is only the second of two agents, FDA-approved JAK inhibitors in our entire field. You helped to pioneer the first one, ruxolitinib. This is the second one. So now we know in longer follow-up, it's safe, it's effective, you can mitigate these uh, fairly tolerable side effects, and you should be watching out for encephalopathy in general, not necessarily the Wernicke's, and it's something that we can do as a field. It's also important to note that it's not just another JAK inhibitor. Each of these, and we have the picritinib and momolotinib in, in phase three studies still, look at the other targets that each of these JAK inhibitors are hitting, and then you can use them in sequence depending on the JAK inhibitor. So it was a very exciting presentation. You know, very true, very true. You know, as folks ask me, you know, at this
this meeting, you know, how do I view the, the landscape for myelofibrosis? Yeah. You know, and, and obviously many things in development, many more than, than ever. You know, so I try to break it into into kind of different segments. Mm. You know, one, the, the jack inhibitor segment. We have two approved drugs, they're both good drugs. You know, they're now you know, now we're celebrating more than ten years that Ruxolindib has been approved. Wow, right. You know, and the impact that it's had, we think of all the patients that have benefited over this decade wow. is tremendous. You know, and last year's Ash, you guys presented a beautiful paper that, that really continued to validate the observation that there's probably a survival advantage for yes. people who are treated on that. But now we have two that really are are on the cusp of also probably being part of this equation as we think about you know optimizing jack inhibition. The first is procridinib that you know we think and it's in the public domain that it hopefully will be uh, available for patients you know to be commercially prescribed in quarter one of 2022. So where might procridinib fit in for our MF patients? A very important question. The the issue with the two approved jack inhibitors is that at least in terms of package label and the way we all studied it there's a platelet cutoff whatever it is 50 let's say for yeah. these two so beyond below that there's really not a jack inhibitor there so this agent pacritinib has been shown that it can still be given safely and feasibly even in patients with low platelets so i think that's very exciting and then the second aspect as we were mentioning earlier is that each of these jack inhibitors hit different targets in the case of the pacritinib agent it hits IRAC and some of these other pathways, which are implicated in what we call the inflammasome or mitosome, and that may have other pleiotropic effects that are still being studied uh, in the lab and in, in patient samples. So you and I, we see patients every week. We welcome this because each of these agents is not, quote, just another JAK inhibitor. It gives us another option. The other aspect of it is, is what about long-term safety and efficacy? Sometimes those things are observed after a drug is already approved, and that's something that you and I are comfortable with, with why the RUX has over a decade now of uh, post-approval data. And finally, Ruben and Naveen comments on combination therapies in myelofibrosis and the future of MPN research. I think the other issue for us is uh, combination therapies, right? And, and you and I have been part of that. And I wanted to get your take on that, which is combining agents with a JAK inhibitor. What has caught your eye there uh, at this, Ash Rubin? Well, I think there's a lot of exciting things. You know, I think first, patients will probably be on an optimized JAK inhibitor. Mm. You know, we add in the fourth JAK inhibitor, mamelodinib, uh, also working against ACVR1. It's inhibiting hepcidin, it might help to improve anemia. You know, and I think procritinib and mamelodinib really will, will factor into the treatment landscape in a range of ways, particularly in patients with thrombocytopenia or anemia or both. Maybe some front line, clearly some, some second line as well. But the combinations are really interesting, you know, and the, there's multiple. You know, I could just, just to list a few, we have palabresib, uh, parsiclisib, uh, Nevitaclax, Selinexor, uh, you know, on and on. You know, there's so many of these different right. drugs that we're looking at. Uh, the uh, uh, MDN2 inhibitor from, from Cartos, many of them. You know, from my end, I think, one, these drugs may be able to improve the response rates of those things that we have historically valued. You know, a higher degree of spleen or symptom response, mm -hmm. either in the frontline setting, which is now being asked with Nevitaclax and, and palabresib, but others may go to that kind of untreated group. 
in this kind of add-on group, if, you ha if you're on for a while, you add these drugs on, yes. what, what do you gain? Uh, and then third, in the kind of, we failed rocks, now you're on this drug alone. Now there's, all are starting to see different potential additional areas of benefit. Mm. Maybe improved cytopenias, maybe improve fibrosis, maybe improve uh, allele burden. All I think need to be viewed with some degree of these are still really exploratory endpoints. You know, we don't know quite what they are, but I'm excited. Yeah. You know, I also take a bit of a bird's eye view and say what we have is we have a series of phase two studies with several ongoing phase three studies, but we truly only have phase three data mm. in JAK inhibitors at this point. We have no phase three data yet in any non-JAK inhibitor. Right. So there is some amount of, we really do need to let these things play out. Right. Uh -huh. You know, see really what the final data is. Because people say, well, how are they gonna factor in? I think it's gonna depend. Okay. You know, I think for mine, it's gonna depend, what was that efficacy exactly? Are there really subgroups? Because we, we are talking about combination therapies likely will be quite expensive, you know, and potentially have other toxicities. But where, how do you see this evolving? In, in any that you, if you were to say, well, these are the ones that I'm most excited about at this moment, you know, what would that be? Yeah, I like the way you fleshed out and outlined this field uh -huh. because many of our colleagues have been used to just one drug or one class of drugs. Yeah. Wow, you really nailed it. So the combinations can be in three ways now. Upfront, yeah. jack inhibitor naive, suboptimal response add-on, and then completely relapse refractory. I, I really would pick up where you just mentioned, which is in these novel mechanisms of action. You have uh, the bromodomain inhibitor, palabrasib, as you mentioned. So we have some single agent activity with that now being combined. So that mechanism, bromodomain, looks like it modulates MPN cytokines, megakaryocytes, erythrocytes. So maybe at the level of the bone marrow uh, in our patients. That combination is very exciting, Ruben, because our colleagues have shown that there may be anemia improvement early on. These are yeah. ongoing studies. We want to let everyone know these are in clinical trials, so we want that data to mature, as you mentioned. The second one, as you know, I'm uh, very much involved in the Ruxo plus Naviticlax sure. data that you and I are both part of. That's BCLXL. Here's what you were talking about, the, the fascinating miracles of drug discovery. Everyone out there knows the Venetoclax story, BCL2, which is now approved in a number of different leukemia states, but BCLXL is still not yet FDA approved. It's in active clinical trials. That appears to be active for some yeah. reason in our myelofibrosis, so that agent in combination with Ruxo is now in phase three studies and the transform studies. We eagerly await those data. And then finally, as you mentioned, the PI3 kinase inhibitor story, parseclosib, also in combination with Ruxo, also going into phase three studies. Those are in the frontline setting, but then you also have uh, the metalstat agent, sure. which our colleagues, including uh, John Moskranis in New York, are developing. And the key there is phase three study, relapse refractory, but for the first time in our field, overall survival as the primary endpoint, which I know you and I are excited to see, patient-centered focus. It's what we started out talking about. Biology, lab science, symptom burden, spleen, how about overall survival? What do you think about that in terms of these new breed of phase three trials? You know, I think it's key. You know, I think one, we'll really need to see the data. You know, as people say, well, the initial response rate looks higher than the comfort studies. 
I, I always caution a word of of, sure. of of caution with that. Meaning, you know, having put people on those studies, the people that we put on upfront study now are not the people that we put on the comfort study. Mm. The comfort study was you know, we had no prior effective therapy. So it was people that had had the disease for years, sometimes with advanced disease. Oh, I see. They failed hydrogen, they failed all sorts of things. They hadn't failed the jack inhibitor, but they'd failed all sorts of things. That is different than the almost newly diagnosed patient. So I do think the control arms of some of these studies may do better than the comfort studies had done historically. So we'll just have to see. But, but I think it's all positive. You know, if there's 10 drugs approved for myelofibrosis, that's fabulous. We'll take it. You know, and people say, well, you know, how can that small, you know, disease really support all these drugs? I'm like, that, not to worry. <laughs> you know, in part, you know, we know that many of these therapies that really are quite innovative may impact a range of diseases. I mean, right. they're developed in a bunch of things. It's not that they have to really only exist just based off myelofibrosis. Right. But our patients are heterogeneous. We know that there's a lot of patients with unmet need in MP and MDS overlap syndromes, in, in more advancing disease, mm -hmm. other combinations. So the more options we have, I think, the better off we are. You know, it's not to say that right you know, we have a full dance card and... Right. and can't really develop it any further. So this has been a, a wonderful update, my friend. Maybe give folks kind of a final thought, uh, exciting thing. What is your most exciting thing you're looking forward to as it relates to MPNs for 2022? For 2022, as the pandemic extends, uh, you know, you and I and others have talked about that. I've got two takeaway points for our uh, folks out there. One is that despite difficult times that we've all faced internationally here back home in the States, that we must, it's imperative, it's a necessity that we continue to meet like this at meetings, online, virtual, hybrid if it's safe, because no matter what's going on in the world, we must continue our work in these rare blood cancers. Because Ruben, as you and I have said many times before, if you have a rare blood cancer like myelofibrosis, PV or ET, it's not rare to you. That's what you and your family are dealing with. We must continue what we're doing. And I'm very proud that our field has moved on despite these last two years. The second takeaway is what you said there. I'm eager to see the mature data on the combination studies to see how we deal with overlapping toxicities, low blood counts, dose adjustments of one or the other. And then if and when these get approved in the community setting, you know, looking forward to a few years, how they are done off of clinical trials, right? And I think you and I will be helping to learn, teach, collaborate with people on that. So I think those are my two takeaways. What about for you, Ruben, as no, we close this? No, wonderful. You know, first, with this unprecedented number of phase threes, I think the data from the phase threes, the correlative studies, you know, will be scrutinized to a tremendous detail. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that it's just a matter of what we validated, what we presented at ASH in our phase two. <laughs> You know, I think I think the granularity, the details will be important because there will be multiple options and how we use them and how we really tailor that to the care of an individual that may have a complex disease journey will be critical. The second that we've not yet seen, but really excites me, are the various strategies that are being planned, vaccine, CAR-T, mm. uh, you know, immunologic around 
around CalR mutated disease. Oh, yeah. CalR expressed on the cell surface, it at least in theory seems one that we might be able to address in a slightly different way. You know, still kind of a proof of concept, but boy, wouldn't it be exciting if that really makes, yes. you know, a very complementary difference to some of the things that have already been developed. That's great. Well, great. Well, this has been a wonderful chance for us to chat on Vijay Hemag, uh, reporting here from ASH of 2021. My friend Naveen, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you to our speakers and to you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Podbean and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemong to join in the conversation and visit VJHemong.com for the latest updates in the field.